we always think about how we learn better, but do we ever think about how we learn faster? We're going to talk about learning accelerators with our dear friend, Dr. Lauren Hodges, on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hello. Hey, Bob. How are you? Good. We're doing, doing great. Doing great. It's a beautiful, sunny, warm day here in Long Beach, California. Um, how is it where you guys live? Beautiful and sunny. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh-huh. Beautiful and sunny from Lauren. Yep. She from lives in, in Florida. Yep. Yep. Dana, what about you? It's, it, it, I'm looking out and I'm seeing the bottom of the mountains, but I'm not seeing the top of the mountains because they're <laughs> currently actively full of snow and getting more. Getting snowed upon. As much as potentially five feet over the next few days. Jake, how's it in uh, Illinois? And I am looking out at a slushy, snowy mess. And that's freezing rain right now. And mm-hmm. we're expecting another six inches yeah. over the day. Great. Like, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chicago it's, weather. It's actually it's awesome. very pleasant for Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm excited. I, I hope I'm hoping that we can get out and, and, and sled before it gets zero degrees here. Oh yeah, sledding day. on ice is um, a blast. I'm that. Lauren, I bet like me, you were you were fine with sacrificing sledding, right? You know, I think I could do without. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't do winter. I never have. Grew up in Miami. So y- y'all can have it. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I learned. I learned. I, I had it. And I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And now I'm out here, which is great. I just got back from the beach, by the way, guys. You guys do so, hot and humid. We do. We do it well. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is true. That's the Florida side. California, mm-hmm. weather perfect all of the time. Just great. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. great. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk yeah. about learning accelerators. Uh, Dana. Yeah. Uh, would you like to introduce, again, our dear friend of the show? She's been on before, I, Dr. Lauren Hodges. I would love to do that, yes. Dr. Lauren Hodges, as Bob mentioned, a good friend of the show and a friend of uh, each of us. We've we've known uh, Lauren for many years and worked with her on a variety of projects. In fact, she was part of our team as we rolled out a variety of uh, research in, a, in um, a lot of it relating to our topic today. And in particular, uh, Lauren has done a lot of research in the area of stress and stress management and the difference between good stress and bad stress, and has a book coming out in just a few months. And so we thought we would have our good friend Lauren on again to uh, talk about the learning accelerators, but also a little bit more about uh, maybe a little bit about the authoring process and how painful that might that might be. Speaking of stress. (laughs) So Lauren, we're so glad to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here again. I I just love chatting with you. Maybe I should do a little setup on the the notion of learning accelerators. Please do. As we were trying to think about how we can help our people internally learn how to learn better, we thought we would uh, start with kind of an overview of the brain processes of, you know, how does the brain intake information? How does it encode and how does it retrieve? And what are the memory types associated with it and those types of things? And as we're doing the research, it became clear that there are a lot of uh, things going on in the brain, a lot of brain chemistry. There are a lot of uh, other things that impact our ability to learn effectively and efficiently. And there were four in particular that we called out that uh, the research was, was pretty clear on. If you pay attention to those four, 
it can really have an impact on your ability to learn. And those four things include nutrition, exercise or movement, exercise or movement of some sort, uh, sleep and stress management. So those became known uh, as learning accelerators in, in our uh, internal communications about learning to learn. And again, Lauren helped us with research on all four of those areas. So I think we could explore any one of those. Uh, any one of those sound interesting to any of you to start with? You know, maybe we should mm -hmm. maybe we should start off by talking a little bit about exercise. The reason precisely being, I was talking to my wife and my son. We were out for dinner last night. My my oldest son is staying with us for a while between jobs. Shameless plug, if anybody needs a graphic designer, uh, give me a call. Because um, we're ready for him to move. Uh, no, that's not true. We, we enjoy having him here. Anyway, I was I told him we were doing a podcast and with you, Lauren, and talking about exercise. He has been working really hard in his down season on learning Spanish as a second language. And he just decided to get a membership at the Planet Fitness by us. Usually we do not ascribe to going to Planet Fitness because as we've established, the weather is perfect here every day. You can go out and actually run outside. But he signed up for Planet Fitness because he wanted to work on his Spanish while he was uh, on the treadmill. And he said he's been trying to do that and he's just finding it distracting. So, you know, the question I would have to tee this up is – is exercising while you're learning, does that actually help the learning process or does it wind up just being more distracting like Harrison is finding out? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, I would think that it actually would be a good challenge to try to think while you're exercising. I think maybe the higher the heart rate, the harder that might get. I think it's probably akin to the whole cold plunge mm. thing. You know, people are learning how to manage their stress better by submerging in ice water and trying to do math equations and things for, for a lot of other reasons, cold therapy is supposed to be great. But, but it's funny you say that because I have been taking my iPad and working on mm. the treadmill uh, at our local gym uh, when it's raining, by the way, because yes, our weather is, I hate to <laughs> just keep, you know, rubbing it in. Um, but it's actually been great because I've been able to do both at the same time, but I'm not doing anything really intense and yeah, yeah. I haven't felt uh, unfocused or challenged, but I'm not trying to learn a new language, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah, doing emails yeah. or catching up on articles or things like that. Um, so I'm essentially just doing it from strict efficiency perspective and productivity. Why not kill two birds with one stone? Um, but I have read in the research and Dana and I had, had done this together that it, the exercise primes the brain for learning quite well. So uh, forgive me for not remembering the specific studies on that, but I know that um, exercise before and after have been shown to influence our ability to recall better, to learn things and remember things better. And then exercise beforehand to help us um, be a little bit more alert and focused before learning. So I would actually be really curious to know if the what the intensity was and the duration of that exercise, if you were trying to learn at the same time, would that be better or worse for you? And I would bet it would vary based on what you're doing and how intense it is. And, you know, all that, that makes stuff. a lot of sense. I'll find out, you know, we, we can use him as a guinea pig and find out. But yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to get on, um, you know, the Google Scholar right after this and start finding those studies because now I want to know. <laughs> but I do know that, you know, exercise, it lights up every area of the brain. So when we're moving, um, 
and, and I, I almost positively remember several studies saying that moving while trying to learn was useful. I'm, I just, of course, immediately go to well, how much movement, right. you know, that's just always. And question. like, are you trying to not this- fall off a treadmill that's going too fast? Right. Cause that sometimes takes a little bit of effort. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I do think, you know, my son, it's funny you say that is trying to learn Russian right now. And, um, for, I don't even know why he's not taking it in school. He's just, curious and wanted to have fun with it. So, um, so anyway, I, I'm curious that if he was moving around, that might be, um, that might be a little bit more beneficial for him. And I, I remember several studies saying that movement does help with retaining information. So I have a couple of reflections. One is Bob, I'm wondering if, because, and this ties into what Lauren was just saying, because of the intensity of both activities, I wonder if there's some like task switching that's going on there that's causing mm-hmm. it to be a little bit more challenging. So that that's one one question, I, I guess, or one reflection. The other reflection is I know sometimes when I want to focus and concentrate, if I'm trying to read something, I will actually stand up and walk around rather than sit at my desk. And and mm-hmm. and I'll I won't walk anywhere that's new. I will walk kind of a pattern of you know places I know, uh, so that that becomes kind of a, a way of just getting blood flowing, I guess, while yeah. I'm, while yeah. I'm focusing. So I, I think, and in that case, the movement is helping you to focus, but it's not demanding any additional uh, brain space. Yeah. And that's probably where it goes back to, doesn't it, Dana? So I you know, we know that movement does, and just, just redirection of blood flow does help with yeah. focus and yeah. alertness and all of that. It's funny, but not funny, but interesting where you say, I go to places that I'm familiar with. And that's probably to your point about task switching, probably maybe your son is just not comfortable walking, for example, on a treadmill or being on an elliptical. And so it's just, it's, it's requiring a split sort of focus. And that might be what it is where for me, walking on a treadmill is sort of second nature on the days that it's raining. And so it's not requiring a lot of my brain power, probably the same for you, Dana, when you're walking in those familiar yep. circles, you know, which also just from a sheer learning delivery perspective, um, we were just, I was just last week in Montgomery at Maxwell Air Force Base with a client and we did a ton of walk and talks for our exercises. You know, we asked a big juicy question to borrow the phrase from one of our friends of mine, um, Colonel Jason True, and um, and we just had them walk away for 25 minutes and actually walk and talk at the same time. And of course, we know that from a learning perspective, it just helped them uh, retain a little bit more and stay more engaged in the conversation. Well, that was a good plug for an upcoming podcast because we're having Jason come up uh, later this spring. We're going to have him on a podcast, and we're going to we're going to talk about using Lego as part of your leadership development program. So brilliant, brilliant guy. I'm so excited to hear him on the learning geeks. And we're always happy to talk about Lego. (laughs) Of course. As I I am playing with a Lego toy. (laughs) Well, maybe let's, um, maybe I want to stay stressed for last. Maybe let's talk a little bit about sleep because that's something that I struggle with. I've been struggling with my sleep for years. It's been getting a little bit better lately, actually, as I've been focusing on exercise and nutrition. Um, ironically, or maybe not ironically, but, um, yeah, what about, what about sleep? How does that help? Sleep helps with all areas of cognition, learning, memory, focus, um, even just things like that, that are indirectly, but related to learning things like, um, 
mood and um, emotional regulation and stress regulation and um, you know even self-efficacy has relationship to feeling alert and awake um, when you're tired it naturally decreases your ability to stay attentive, have conversations with people, connect with other people. Um, you know, so in other words, in a learning moment, having uh, ability to stay focused in a group or small group setting, respond to problems, th think deeply, make critical decisions. I mean, it's just, there's so much relationship between sleep, hygiene, and health and our ability to learn and retain. I mean, bottom line is when you prioritize your sleep, you're, you're simply going to learn better. And, you know, hate, hate to say it, but we need a lot of sleep, you know, seven to nine hours is about the recommended amount of quality sleep. So, and there was just a cool, friendly conversation slash debate on LinkedIn recently about the efficacy or the usefulness of sleep trackers mm -hmm. and are they helpful or hurtful. And I was kind of thinking a lot about that in the past couple of weeks. Um, personally, I love the whoop that I wear because I can track my sleep. And I definitely see a relationship but between my ability to show up from a cognitive perspective and um, my sleep health and how well I slept the night before. How a about you all? Well, I was going to say a couple other things that came out in the research. One was the, and I think if you're worried about sleep, this is something that you've already heard, but the, uh, the, blue, the blue screen on your, on your device right, tends to activate chemistry of your brain that keeps you awake. So, you know, n mm -hmm. knock off the phone looking at at least 30 minutes before. The other thing is the room temperature. I, th I thought when we did the research, it was interesting. It said, you know, put your room somewhere between 60 degrees and 67 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, pretty cold. Yeah, I thought that was uh, that was pretty chilly. And then the other thing is I, I love the phrase that we came across in the research, Lauren, where it talked about uh, when you sleep, your brain is taking out the neural trash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's clearing, mm -hmm. clearing out certain toxins of your, of your brain and just clearing it up and getting it ready to learn the next day. Yeah. Which is, and also related to brain diseases, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, they're, they're seeing more and more of those connections too. And, and then there's the whole, remember we were talking about alcohol and caffeine and the relationship between that and our sleep health. So those are two that when I have a client struggling with sleep, I ask them to sort of just be mindful and track, you know, when you're having caffeine in the afternoon, it has a half-life of, I think about six hours. And so it's probably mm -hmm. still in your system. And then, you know, alcohol varies by the individual, but alcohol can significantly impact sleep for some people. So maybe they can go to sleep, but they don't wake up refreshed or they wake up a lot during the night. So those are two things you could pay attention to as well. Yeah. And I know that has actually helped me a lot too, in cutting back on both of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a little excessive with caffeine. I would never say I was excessive with alcohol, but I've dialed it down to almost zero. And caffeine is like one mug of coffee a day instead of four and then diet cokes all day mm -hmm. so, Makes and, a big and, and one red bull right before you go to bed <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> i do notice that when i get a better night's sleep and when i feel alert it definitely is is easier and improves the the learning for sure mm -hmm. so lauren when i when i think of my sleep and when i have had terrible sleep and i'm actually going to blame it on when i have to edit the podcast sometimes because i'm a procrastinator and i wait till like the last minute to do it and it takes me forever at night, but I feel awful in the morning. And again, I know that, but 
the one thing I do, I know we're, we're talking specifically about sleep, but when I step back and think of even those four elements, sometimes stress then impacts sleep. Sometimes sleep can then impact something else. It could also impact the way that you eat, even as much as you know. Um, I would just be curious from you, your end, and when you talk with other folks about that holistic side, what are some of the things that you recommend when you know, maybe there is a stressful time in your life right now when sleep has become more difficult just in general. It's hard to go to bed. Maybe because you've been up at night or work things have happened and you got all these crazy deadlines. How do you talk to your clients about that and about thinking of it holistically, not such in the one-dimensional level? Mm, that's a great question. So we don't, I don't work with clients one-dimensionally either. There's always a relationship and, and you know, you, you said it really, Bob, you actually said it just before you, you've noticed that nutrition and exercise are helping with your sleep. So we know that they're all connected. Um, when people have a lot going on in their minds, it could help them or or hinder them from being able to fall asleep quickly or get a good night's sleep. But every person is so uniquely individual. And I've found that, you know, it's sort of like a trial and error for us. We we just pick one ritual, or, or small action and we test it out. A good example is journaling before bed or meditating before bed. So I have some clients who journaling before bed and that mind dump of just getting everything out, everything from the next day that they're thinking about already, um, things that might've been bothering them or on their mind, really helpful. For some people, it just turns the brain on and, and they're just full steam ahead. They can't fall asleep. The same would go for meditation, that even the type of meditation really should vary based on how you're experiencing stress. Now we're kind of getting into that conversation. But, you know, for example, if you tell someone who's a worrier to go be alone with their thoughts right before bed, what do you think they're going to do? You know, they're yeah. It's like, don't think of a pink elephant right now, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What, why did but, they tell me to do that? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you tell them to maybe do a guided meditation from the Calm app, maybe that would help them bring them back to the present moment, you know, whereas somebody with a really busy brain with a lot on their mind, you know, asking them to do a focused or guided meditation may not be the most effective strategy because their brain is already busy enough. So we're actually trying to get them to access that, uh, what we all know to be the default mode network, you know, that mind wandering space and just let them go there and breathe, let the brain breathe for a little bit because it's just too active up in that uh, PFC, you know, that prefrontal cortex. So that goes for stress in general, but it also goes for helping improve sleep habits is I think it's different for each person. Some people love movement, yoga, a little exercise before bed. For some people, it just wakes them up too much. And I think uh, instead of maybe thinking about there being just a catch-all, I think the catch-all solution is meditation and mindfulness is extremely beneficial. How, when, what, for how long, I think that's going to uniquely vary by the person and how that might, how you might notice how that influences other areas. I'm a big proponent of journaling uh, and not even just the long drawn out pages of narrative, but just tracking the data of how certain practices are influencing other areas to your point. You know, wow, I noticed that this and this happened when I tried this. I stopped drinking so much Diet Coke and coffee and look what happened on the sleep end. We can't argue with our own data. And um, and I think it's an important thing to 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 test out and start to track these different practices and how they influence the other learning accelerators. 
That is one of the things I like about the Whoop. I, I have one too, and I'm about to give it up because it's a little, I, I think it's for people who are more like toned athletes than I am. I, no. I, always feel, I always feel guilty when I look at the data. But I do like the function in there. It's got that journaling. It's mm-hmm. optional, right? But it's got that journaling thing. And you set up what are the things you want to track. And so you wake up in the morning and it asks you about the day before. And it's like, did you have caffeine? You know, did you... Um, did you have alcohol? Did you use a sleep mask? Did you take any sleeping pill? Uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you get to decide. And it is interesting to see that data. Yeah, I don't I don't personally love the journaling feature because I feel like I'm being interrogated first thing in the morning. <laughs> I like to track it. By a device. <laughs> I know. I actually just calendar in 15 minutes on Fridays at noon and I reflect on a lot of different things. And one of them is my health and those specific cool. specific goals. Um, and then, you know, just general business goals and life goals. Um, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of it, but I hear people love that feature about the whoop. So why don't we hit on nutrition for just a little bit? And then I'd like to spend, you know, good, since your book is on stress, let's spend uh, the last chunk of time on, on stress. But what about nutrition? We've hit on it a little bit. You know, caffeine comes in a variety of forms. I don't drink coffee, but I love chocolate. <laughs> and I know there's caffeine in there. Um, so, so what about what's the impact of nutrition on on learning, and what are some things that you recall from the research? Well, the one that always stuck out to me was, and I think we've mentioned it on a Learning Geeks episode before, is the impact of glucose on the brain and it being uh, the brain being um, just a huge lover of glucose. <laughs> I think it chews up. Um, maybe 20 to 30% of our daily intake in glucose goes straight to brain function. So it, it's just a, it's a food machine and it needs, um, it needs nutrition on a regular basis in order to function and operate at its best. And that includes our potential to learn and um, to retain what we're learning from all different areas of the brain. That being said, I know there's a lot of different um, opinions, you know, and nutrition is one of those things. It's like religion and politics and sports. People just have <laughs> strong opinions. But one consistent feature of the research in general is just eating light, often and balanced has never failed us in terms from mm. the perspective of brain health, cognitive performance from a learning perspective. You know, going too long without having anything to eat, for example. Now, I know that the fasting camp will come at me with that. And a lot of people say they feel a lot more alert and, and um, focused and they learn better when they're fasting. That's great. If it works for you, I think it works great. Oh, great. But, but, and I shouldn't say, but, and the research is pretty consistent that when we eat often and we regulate our blood sugar and we have a whole balanced meal with healthy proteins and carbohydrates and healthy sources of fat, our brain simply operates at a higher potential. So, um, you know, I say test what works for you, you know. I remember also one of the pieces of research that struck me was that even mild dehydration, so what, from a water perspective, can reduce cognitive, cognitive performance by as much as 10%. Yeah. Mm. That's a pretty yeah. alarming number because it's real easy to yeah. not drink water. And it's, yeah. a, it's pretty important here in Florida, as you can imagine, with our humidity being what it is, staying hydrated is hard enough, but I have noticed that personally is when I don't drink enough water. I just feel really unfocused. And then, you know, we tend to think maybe I just need something to eat or maybe I just need a break. But a lot of times we just need some water. And one thing I've noticed moving from Chicago where it's humid in the summers 
out to Utah where it's dry in the summers is in Chicago, when I'd work out outside, I would perspire quite a bit. In Utah, when you perspire, it's so dry that it evaporates. So you're not as cognizant that you're losing liquid. So I've had to put a concerted effort into thinking, okay, I need to drink. I need to drink. I need to drink. Dana, Dana doesn't sweat anymore. He just glows. I glow. <laughs> I have this halo around my whole body. Yeah. <laughs> well, and my husband has a great hack. You know, he drinks a lot of water at work. And it, um, for obvious reasons, it keeps him hydrated. But also, it just gets him up and moving. Because you uh-huh, like, for obvious reasons. More often yeah. for obvious reasons. And so it does make, it inserts a little bit more movement into his day. Because no matter how busy you get, and you got to go, you got to go. So I thought that was part of him. <laughs> All right, so Lauren, you wrote an entire book on stress. Why Why the topic of stress? What about it is interesting to you? And, and from a learning perspective, what are some of the implications there? Ooh, so the topic itself is on uh, the neuroscience of stress and the fact that we all have very, we are very uniquely wired to show up under stress differently, all of us. Stress being a biological, psychological, you know, process that we all experience, you know, um, if a spider dropped in front of me right now, you would all see um, and hear my fight or flight. <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar to everybody else's. But the way that we show up in a- after that initial kind of fight or flight moment and the way that we all have sort of pre-wired, um, not pre-wired from birth, but but wiring that we have learned as we have grown and developed and from our caregivers and how they modeled stress and our environment, our geography, our genetics, all of the, all of that shapes and molds how we show up today. We have unique thoughts, emotions, and behaviors under stress. After working on a project actually with Accenture and um, Stanford Medicine and, and, and at Thrive Global, when we created a course called Thriving Mind Together, and I started to dive into that research, I fell in love, kept going with it. And just took a super deep dive and decided this was an area that I really felt pretty passionate about because I started to see how uniquely uh, wired all of my clients were in very, very different ways. And so there's so much we could talk about there, but the long and the short of it is that if we all show up differently, that means that we all recover differently from stress. And what, you know, Bob needs might not be what Dana needs and, you know, what Jake needs might not be what Lauren needs. And so knowing who we are and building that awareness is hugely important. From a sheer learning perspective, um, even the experience of regular chronic stress can significantly impact our cognition and our ability to learn, our memory, um, all of that in an acutely stressful situation. Interestingly enough, in a, in a short, acutely stressful moment, we actually are more focused most of the time and we can retain information briefly and quick, more quickly, but that's not usually how stress shows up in our lives. It shows up in sort of this slow burn, you know, of low, for a lot of people of low negative stress. And so chronic stress does tend to impact us significantly. Um, But even, you know, just going back to that short, acute moment of stress, when we are experiencing, let's just say a car pulling out in front of us, in that moment, we're cognitively impaired right there, blood shunting kind of away from the prefrontal cortex down into the sort of primitive parts of the brain, so that fight or flight can do its job. And cognitively, we are impaired in that moment. Um, But then there's that kind of conflicting research that also in those acute moments or short moments of stress, we can we can be more focused and alert. 
and, and learn a little bit more, which goes back kind of full circle to that conversation earlier about cold therapy and why people do it for cognitive benefit is to put themselves in intentionally stressful, quote unquote, situations like, you know, submerging in ice water and trying to work through things. And the reason they're doing that is because they're trying to recruit in the moment more um, stress or excuse me, blood back up to that prefrontal cortex to make sure that they can access it and activate it a little bit more um, quickly and efficiently in a moment of stress. So AKA trying to become more resilient in a moment of stress. So I don't know if that answers your question, Dana, but that's why I fell in love with it. And I, I do really, I really am interested in the intersections between stress and learning and cognitive health and brain health. And what are some of the key things that people are going to read if they, when they pick up your book? What inspiring things will they walk away with? Hmm. I hope they walk away with something inspiring. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be really stressed. You know? <laughs> um, well, it is so, a- for example, are you giving a, are you giving uh, ideas on managing stress and? Uh, yeah. So, because to me that would be inspirational. Yeah, so it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure type of um, organization of the book. So the first kind of few chapters is the biology of stress, just helping people understand it. It's a new stress is neutral; it's not good nor bad. You know, it it could be opportunity for growth, right? I mean, stress is a wonderful thing. It challenges us; it pushes us to new heights. So it's not necessarily good or bad. So we talk a lot about just stress in general, what it is, why it could be beneficial what our stress personalities are, how they're formed, why they could be good or bad. You know, there's definitely superpowers embedded within all of our stress personalities. Um, They make us who they are. So we're not trying to, you know, cure them or squelch them or trying to get to know them. That's really it. And then each chapter people can navigate based on who they think they might be. And Hmm. they can uh, look at not just how that stress personality shows up, but what are some unique um, resets or stress resets that they can integrate to help them better manage that stress personality when they notice that it's showing up. And that quiz is something you can actually take online. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. On my website, performanceonpurpose.com, there's a an about the author and actually on every single page of, the, of our company website, there's a quiz that people can take to try to guess their stress personality. Noting, of course, we're all researchers here that this is just in the moment, self-reported <laughs> assessment. It's a fun, not yeah. scientifically validated tool. It's just an awareness builder. But the book has uh, some exercises to help you get to know that part of yourself as well. So, Lauren, do you think as learning designers, we should really work to manage the stress in our learners, either you know, to tune it up a little bit to get to that burst of stress that might make them more aware and better learners or to ease it down? What are your thoughts on that? I I I was thinking about that earlier today. You know, we we talk about desirable difficulties and Mm allostatic load and how much stress should we really um, try to put on our learners because a little bit is great and too much is not. But that really is uniquely individual to the learner, too. And so you can't walk in a room and try to guess everyone's capacity for stress. It can be different from day one to day two. You know, we've had retreats, for example, two-day retreats where someone was primed for learning on day one and then something came up at work the night before and they were feeling extremely overwhelmed um, the next day and so their capacity for learning was different and so i might as a facilitator 
maybe alter the way I deliver an exercise or challenge them gently or, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit differently, even from that day one to day two with that unique learner. So I feel bad not giving a really specific, concrete answer, but I think it really is highly individualized to the learner, their environment. Um, I think we probably want to do our best as learning uh, facilitators or deliverers of learning to challenge people just enough, to push them just enough so it feels challenging and difficult enough so that they actually retain and learn that information and can see the direct application in their life, but not so much that it's overwhelming um, to the point where they're not able to focus or they're disengaged. But I don't know, that's really individualized. Don't you think so? I do. I totally do. And I think it's something that as we start being able with the new technology coming out to create more hyper-personalized learning experiences for people, mm-hmm. you know, it, it might be something that we can actually leverage more than we have been able to in the past and get the, as you were talking about all this, I keep thinking about the flow state and Chikmet, mm-hmm. Csikszentmihalyi's research, yeah. you know, that right balance between boredom and challenge yeah. and <clears throat> being able to come up with, with or have a tool that uses technology to sense where people are at and then also get them into that right level of of stress, it seems like it would be an ideal learning environment. I think so. And I think, I think some, I'm excited to see where that goes. And I think some facilitators um, or learning designers have kind of a unique innate ability to just know, you know, and kind of read a room or even individual to individual. It reminds me of last night, we downloaded some game on my son's Oculus and it was like a plank that you walk out on over. Oh yeah. Yeah. Richie's plank experience. Right. Oh my goodness. My heart was racing. I didn't even get out of the elevator. I couldn't do it. (laughs) I couldn't do it. Yeah. And you know, of course the whole family's making fun of me, my two boys, my husband, but, um, but that was too much stress for me in that moment. So I was not, I would not have been primed to learn in a moment like <laughs> that. So, you know, when you're talking about creating games or challenges for people, yeah, making them walk a plank might not be a good idea if they're afraid of heights. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you know what? We're already launching into a second podcast, I realize here. So we probably, looking at the clock on the wall, need to wrap this up. Uh, Lauren, any final thoughts on this that you want to share with us? Uh just the encouragement for everyone to think about this from a learning design perspective, but also just for themselves personally, you know, when we're taking care to address those different learning accelerators in ourselves, I think it makes us better learning designers, deliverables of information, and, and just testing this out in our own life, you know, sort of the proverbial put your oxygen mask on first, I think is a good general recommendation to be tweaking these areas of our life before we're thinking about how they apply to other people. That's great. And where do people find you online? You mentioned your website a little bit earlier, but give that to us again and then however else we should search you down or find your book. Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm at, uh, I think it's Dr. Lauren Hodges, but you can look me up on LinkedIn. And then the website is performanceonpurpose.com. And that is our my company website. And there's an about the owner page of that. So you can find a lot of that information, including the book and the newsletter and all those types of things. Well, thank you, Dr. Hodges, for being here with us again. Good to see you again. It's great to talk to you. And as always, Dana, Jake, thanks for being here. Yeah. Great doing a podcast with you. Great discussion. Yeah, it wasn't too stressful. Waka waka. (laughs) Except for Jake, for him. (laughs) 
Poor Jake. No. He'll, he'll get back to us, I think, in a second here. But this is great. I can't wait to see him edit this. This is perfect. Uh, most of all, thanks to you, our listener, for joining us. Remember, if you haven't already, go ahead and like and subscribe. I hate it every time I say that, but we need you to do it because it really helps us. Thank you so much. And we'll be back with another episode of the Learning Geeks podcast really soon. So until then, stay geeky, my friends. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Did you guys forget about me? Jake? Hello? Jake? Hello? Jake? Hello? Poor Jake.